Also, I'm going to ask that you remain seated for the beginning of the gospel reading, the 15th chapter of Luke. It's 31 verses. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to remain seated until we get um, about two-thirds full. I'll tell you when to stand. And we actually stand when the reading of the gospel as um, a witness to the gospel lesson, to God's presence through uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we stand when we read the gospel, because it's uh, directly related to the story. And so now let us uh, hear the reading that is in uh, Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there will be joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the paws he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, 
and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now let us stand for the completion of this reading. <clears throat> so he returned home to his father. <clears throat> and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Excuse me. Filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for his son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years, I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And at all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Martha. Uh, I think my voice would have probably given out about halfway through that as well. Friends, if uh, you are with us for the week, uh, we are actually doing a year and a half long series that we are calling the Spicy Gospel because Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke some of the spiciest things in all of the Bible. Uh, here's the deal with these three parables. These three parables are incredibly familiar to us. We know them, especially the last one but we know all three of them. They're three of Jesus's most famous parables. The problem for us is that when we're so familiar with things, we can end up not being curious about them. We look at them, but we don't really see them. You can think of this even in terms of your own relationships. My dad has been gone for 15 years now, and in the last 15 years, I have thought about an endless number of things that I wished 
I would have asked him. I was so familiar with him that I thought I knew everything about him. I didn't need to ask questions. I didn't need to see deeper. And I know that you have experienced the same thing, not only because you're nodding your head, but because I hear it at funerals all the time. I wish I would have asked. And so what I want to do today with these three parables that we're so familiar with is, is actually call us to regain a sort of fascination with the familiar, to, to look at them again and to maybe see them for the first time and to get curious about them. Curious. For example... Is it possible the Pharisees were right? We're so familiar with the stories of the Gospels and the Pharisees being wrong that we never think to ourselves, well, what if they were right? Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people. We never think that we would be the Pharisees saying, oh, the wrong people are around here? Because we've got much more subtle ways of saying it, right? (sighs) Can't believe those people are around our children. Right? We've got these nice southern ways of saying we don't think you belong here. But this is exactly what their complaint is. And and we're so familiar with these complaints that we never consider that the Pharisees could be right. But but let let me, I, I thought this one scholar that I read put it just right. He said, the Pharisees and scribes had a legitimate concern. As would most church-going people today if faced with a similar shocking welcome extended to their contemporary sinners, drug dealers, pimps, porn peddlers, muggers, thieves, traffickers, criminal gangs, swindlers, and terrorists, not to mention unfaithful spouses, cheating taxpayers, computer hackers, con artists, crooked politicians, and greedy, reckless Wall Street bankers. These are the kinds of people who threaten and hurt the rest of us, who often manage to walk away from their crimes and misdeeds, and who leave the rest of us frustrated. Frustrated, angry, feeling vindictive, and for good reason. We are so familiar with the language of Jesus welcomed and ate with tax collectors and sinners that we cannot feel how frustrating it would have been to the religious people who had been trying their whole lives to serve God. And now at the center of the Messiah's activity is this group of people who have just gotten it wrong willfully. This is something worth getting fascinated about. Or maybe consider getting fascinated about Jesus's response to them. Jesus tells three parables. Listen, as a person with ADD, I feel like I can say this. You ever talk to somebody with ADD and you're three stories deep and you're like, all I did was ask a simple question. How did we get here? Martha can't even read all of Jesus's words without her voice breaking because he's just 
Why three parables? Why three parables? And why did I, why did I have them all read? These parables are familiar to us. The last one, the parable of the prodigal son, that parable enough would have been enough on its own just to answer their objections. Well, you know, God welcomes people who get it wrong. Like, why did we need three of them? Or maybe this. Let's get curious about how Jesus makes his point. Jesus has throughout the Gospel of Luke, this is something I've actually learned since preaching through Luke, but I, once you see it, it's all over the place, is that Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke uses an argument style that is called from the lesser to the greater. The first time we saw it is when he said, you who, though you are wicked parents, if you know how to good, 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 give, give good gifts to your children, how much more a God who is a good parent? Right? You know you're sinful when your child asks for bread. You don't give them a stone. How much more does a good God know how to give good gifts? Right? From the lesser, if you being lesser, to the greater, God being greater. Well, this is what's happening in these parables. If a negligent shepherd who not only lost one sheep, but then in order to find that sheep, leaves 99 in the desert where they can be attacked by coyotes. If that shepherd will seek out just one lost sheep, how much more a good shepherd who loves all the sheep. If a woman with apparent ADD, sets down money somewhere and forgets where she sets it down, how much more a God, how much more a God who is a good heavenly mother who is always attentive to us? And if in an enabling father who just gives the inheritance to his child even though he's not dead yet, who just allows him to go squander all of his stuff knowing that he's immature and then doesn't even search for him, if that father, how much more a good father who wants what's best for So maybe we could be curious about why Jesus is always using that argument style. Or maybe we could get curious about the structure itself. This is where I get to be nerdy, but I think you can enjoy this. All three of these parables have the same structure. It's an indicator that they belong together. You noticed it. You implicitly notice it without me having to tell you. Part of what it means to be a nerd is you just get to say what everybody else is thinking. The structure of all three is this. Something is lost, something is sought for, something is found, the peasants rejoice. Okay? So this is the structure in place in all three, except for 
And this is the fun part. The third parable uses this structure, but plays with it, turns it on its head. In the third parable, the son is not lost. He left. In the third parable, the father actually doesn't search for the son. All the father does is create a safe environment where his son feels free to return home. In the third parable, the son is not found. The son actually initiates his own return. He, his situation gets so desperate that he says, I know that the least of the servants in my father's house at least have their basic necessities met, so I can go home, and at the very least, I will receive that. And so he goes home, and twice it says, the parable says that the son says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, dad. Let me repair this by working really as a slave, is what he says. I know that the insult is too great for me to ever repair this damage, but I will do even the most menial tasks I can imagine in order to try. Now, what you want to notice here is I want to make this into some kind of point. Right? This seems like all over the place. Tom's just asking us to be curious. No, no, Tom's working towards something. Here's what we know. We know that in the parables, that the shepherd and the woman are imperfect analogies for God. Right? They themselves are not perfect, but that's the point. The lesser to the greater, right? The shepherd and the woman are representative of God in the story. Now, Here's what we know. In the parable of the sheep, the sheep didn't find itself. Thank you. He gets it. He's like, right. This man's making a good point. Sheep didn't find itself. The sheep could do nothing to find itself. It didn't return home. It walked around lost the whole time until the shepherd put in all of the initiative and went and found the sheep. The coin is even more helpless. The coin can't even call out. The coin cannot find itself. All of the work is done by a distractible woman who spends her time doing it and she finally finds the coin. And here's, here, here's the deal. The history of the Christian church would absolutely affirm that this is what it is like that this is somehow analogous to how God saves us. We do not save ourselves. It is God who reaches out to us in goodness and mercy and love. In fact, one of the uh, New Testament writers says it this way, we love God because God first loved us. This story does not begin with me and you. This story does not begin with our choices. This story does not begin with our repentance. This story does not begin with us. It is not even primarily about us. 
This story began long before we were here. A God whose character is that when things get lost, God searches for them. That's a story that transcends us. God loved us. We love God because God first loved us. Now, for those of you who grew up in the Presbyterian church, you may be hearing what I'm not saying. Our Presbyterian friends take the next step. They say, well, listen, the coin couldn't even call out. The coin couldn't do anything. The coin has no will. The shepherd is lost. There's nothing the sheep could do. Therefore, what we conclude is that the work of God's grace and God's salvation is 100% God's. Even the human choice to come to God is God's work. This is what our Presbyterian friends say. This is a theology, you don't have to remember this nerdy word, but it illustrates. This theology is called, uh, uh, it's not. Can I have you do that? Thank you. There we go. This theology is called monergism. It essentially says, all the work of salvation is done by God alone. Him, humans contribute no energy or effort to their salvation, not even their choice. God chooses who experiences salvation and who experiences damnation. Now, this is held by some Presbyterians, some Baptists, and everyone who identifies as a Calvinist, but not a Universalist. We could go into the details. Okay. Now, if the only thing in play here were the first two parables, I'd be a Presbyterian. But there's a third parable. And remember what we said, the third parable takes the same structure but turns it on its head. In the third parable, human will is centered. In the third parable, it is not that the son is lost, it is that the son leaves, makes a choice to leave. In the third parable, the, the, there is no person who goes out sweeping and searching and calling for sheep. It is rather in the third parable that the son's life gets hard enough to where he says, I need to go back home, and at the very least, I know that I will receive a base worker's welcome. The son makes the choice to go home. Human will is centered, and when the son makes the choice to go home, he pops up over the hill, and then God does the other 99 steps, right? The father does the 99 steps and runs out to him and says, you were dead, but you were alive again. Throw a feast. And like with the woman and like with the shepherd, there is a big festival and everybody is happy, except for in this story, there is one person who's not happy, and that's the brother, right? Now... The third parable introduces and centers human will. Not to the exclusion of God's work. We still love God because God first loved us. The story does not begin with us. But what God has been doing in the two parables is that God is both searching, 
but also God is creating a safe place for us to return and we are both helpless and yet at the same time, we are a people whose will and agency and choice matters. And how is human agency and will and choice exemplified in this parable? We'll go one more, please. One more. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to call your son. Please take me as a hired servant. Notice what he does. This is the human role in the story. I, I am a coin that cannot save myself. I cannot fix the mess I have made. There must be prior grace and prior mercy at work with a God who is searching for me and is creating a safe place for me to return to. And yet at the same time, this does not absolve me of my moral responsibilities to do two things. Notice what the son does. First, he confesses, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. What is he doing? He is telling the truth about his actions. This is what we are so loath to do. To simply admit it. We have entire propaganda machines at work in our society which are explicitly designed to stop us from telling the truth. And yet it is the honesty about ourselves is the first act of our cooperation with God's prior grace. What we can't be honest about, we cannot repent of. Notice the other thing he does. He says, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. This is the parable's way of saying this. I know that what I have done to God and what I have done to you as my father is so devastating that I could never possibly heal it. I know that this is beyond my repair but I'm being honest about it and I am willing to do even the most menial tasks to begin even in the smallest ways repairing the infinite hurt I have caused honesty and repair you'll go back two slides this is called synergism that what is happening and this is the United Methodist position that what is happening in the story of God's work in our lives is not merely that God is doing all of the work while we passively sit back and allow it to happen rather that our lives are in cooperation with the grace of God that came before us So at every step, 
The question for me in my own spiritual formation, the question for me in my own journey to God and to know God more is, am I in this moment cooperating with the grace of God that is already around me? And what do I need to be honest about in this moment that I've avoided being honest about? And what do I need to be thinking about in terms of repairing damage that I have caused that, that I don't want to face? These are the hard things. And in fact, so hard that they seem impossible. Right? They seem impossible. The wounds we inflict on each other feel infinite. This is why I love that the son, he only has these words in his mind, right? At first, he's like, I'm just going to go home and I'm just going to say, dad, like I messed up. I'll, I'll, I'll be your slave if that's what I need. He takes, he turns and he takes the first step home and he steps on the horizon and his dad doesn't even wait for him to confess. He just, the father knows that simply seeing him on the horizon is a sign of life, a willingness. And the father takes the 99 steps to run out to the sun and celebrate his return. This is what I think is so beautiful in this story. Remember the whole point of the prodigal son parable. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, why are you hanging out with all the wrong people? And notice what Jesus does in this, three, this set of three parables. He never denies that they're the wrong kind of people. He never is like, oh, you guys are being too hard on them. But neither does Jesus ever, as we might be prone to do, turn it around on the Pharisees and be like, well, you are terrible sinners too. No, no. Jesus says the whole time, there have been people who have been faithful. The Pharisees have been being faithful. Just like the, the older son in the parable, Dad, I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. That's the Pharisees. And Jesus is simply saying, you're right. But my sons were dead and they're alive again. This is something worth celebrating. My son was honest enough to appear on the horizon, to come to me and admit what he had done and to offer repair. These tax collectors and sinners, we've already seen it happen. Do you remember what Zacchaeus did? Tax collector, terrible human, starts hanging out with Jesus. Do you remember what he said? If I've robbed anybody, let me repay them a hundred billion times over. Let me be honest about what I have done and repair the damage. Jesus is saying, yeah, 
These folks didn't get it right. But the beauty is that they have cooperated with God's prior grace. Friends, this is incredible. It's incredible. How often do you and I mess up? Small way, big way, whatever. And we say to ourselves, I, we, we, this is me. Maybe I'm just speaking for me. I spiral down into myself, blaming myself, feeling this deep shame for messing up in, in either messing up in all the ways I always mess up and I can't ever get it right, or I mess up in a way that I maybe never messed up before and I'm like, gosh, I thought I was beyond that. And what I do is I spiral deep, deep, deep down into this shame and all it becomes is about me. When what is really needed is three simple things. The recognition that God's grace has been surrounding me the whole time, even when I messed up, and has been providing a place for me to come home even before I messed up. And therefore, I am released not from responsibility, but I am released from shame. And how I am released from shame is that I can be honest about what I did, and I can seek to repair to whatever degree as possible what it is I did, and that at the slightest turn, God will meet me. There is a medieval Jewish parable, if you'll go to the next slide, that I thought was rather appropriate for this. A ruler had a child who had gone astray on a journey of a hundred days, and the child's friend said, return to your parent, and the child said, I cannot, I feel deep shame. I feel deep shame, I cannot return. The ruler sent a message to the child saying, return as far as you can, and I will come the rest of the way to you. In a similar way, God says, return to me, and I will return to you. You and I are invited this morning and every moment to cooperate with the grace of the God that was reaching out to us and searching for us and providing a space for us long before we ever messed up in the ways that we have hidden from ourselves and hidden from others. We do not have to fix all the damage that we have caused because sometimes that damage is infinite and we cannot. But what we are responsible to do is return as far as I can, knowing that my one step is simply a cooperation with a God who's already gone 99 steps. I don't know about you, but I feel like that's the kind of familiarity I can get pretty fascinated. 